Let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, we've got great readings again. <laughs> yeah, they're always great. That's what's it from the Bible. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, one more thing while I got you on the line. And I'd ask uh, that you join me in prayer. I have a very dear friend of mine has just been taken to the hospital, unable to breathe. Christine, uh, her husband Rich, is driving her to the hospital. And Lord, we ask you to bless her and to heal her. And I pray, Lord, for everyone who, who's listening, who may be ill or have someone that they love dearly who's ill. We ask for your healing, and we ask, dear Blessed Mother, that you put your arm around all of us in your great maternal care. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for praying with me. I, I always feel a little guilty because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's I, I don't know, it's just, it's a nice privilege asking you guys to pray for me. But, uh, yeah, the voice might say, I got the microphone. But on the other hand, I, I pray for you too. And, uh, you know, they send us, at the pledge drive, they send us lists of uh, everybody. You know, everybody gets a list of people to pray for. So I was just mentioning a lot of you to the Lord. And, you know, I, I think that that is one of the one I, you know, I really, I love, uh, I, I, they're, they're all good shows as far as I'm concerned. But I, the morning, uh, if you haven't listened to it, the, the, uh, uh, in the morning, uh, Paul Sadek's show, um, it's just time to pray. It's a time of prayer. And then Drew does the, the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Uh, it's the biggest prayer meeting in human history every day. And and then, um, of course, the Rosary, the Family Rosary at night. There's so many opportunities to pray. And, and I think that, you know, so often people like me, we just talk about information. But, uh, you know, our faith is a whole lot more than information. As we're going to see today, because now we're going to the, the big book on the coffee table. You know the one, the Bible. All right, we start out with Isaiah, the 26th chapter. A strong city have we. He sets up walls and ramparts to protect us. Open up the gates. You know, I, I look at this, and again, you know, I, I can't help but say this, take it with a grain of salt, but I look at this, and I what I'm hearing is, we can say we have a strong city, we don't need anything. Oh, no, no, open up the gates to let in a nation that is just. One that keeps faith. 
uh, a nation of firm purpose you keep in peace for its trust is in you. Now, um, let's look at, at this. Jerusalem was a strong city. It was, as I, I was mentioning yesterday, the geography of Jerusalem puts it on what we would call a spur of rock, a kind of triangle, it's really a triangle of, of rock, the old city of Jerusalem, the city of of the Jebusites um, that David conquered, um, uh, and he made it his royal city. It was a town, maybe 10,000 people, if that, and what you had was a kind of triangle, two very long sides that met um, overlooking the Pool of Siloam, uh, what became the Pool of Siloam. Uh, on the east side was a stream that flowed out from a, a natural artesian well, a, a, a spring, uh, the spring of Gion, and um, uh, the, the rock face uh, going up from the spring of Gion was very steep, and then on the other side it was very steep. So those two sides of this three-sided uh, um, uh, spur of, of rock, they, they were fairly unassailable. He had just had to really defend the north end, and that's where the temple and the palace were. Uh, so it was a very strong city. Well, open up the gates, let in a nation that is just. Now, the word for nation, it's, it's a funny kind of word, um, it, it, it's goy. <laughs> that sounds funny. G-O-Y. And uh, the goyim are the nations. But if, if a Jewish person talks about a goy, well, it's a kind of a an unfortunate benighted Gentile. That's what that means. The word the word Gentile comes from the Latin word for goy. It's gens gentis, the nation, a, a people. But the word is really related to a a multitude of people. That's what it means. It's 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 a a mass of people. That's what a, a goy is. Uh, um, so let in the the nation that is just. Now we got a problem here with right with just with righteousness. Um, righteousness is one of the 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 main attributes of God. Uh, it it's, means ethical conduct. Uh, in the Old Testament, but really it's, it's, think about that, that, that righteousness is one of the, the main attributes of God. And, and, um, a tzaddik is a righteous person. If a Jew ever calls you a tzaddik, there's no higher compliment. And, uh, I think it was Maimonides who defined uh, a tzaddik. A tzaddik is one, uh, who's, whose good deeds uh, um, surpass his bad deeds. And I remember, and I thought Rabbi Lefkowitz told me this, uh, but he denied it. He, you know, that God is the ultimate tzaddik. Uh, and he said, when I mentioned that he told me, I said, I never, I could never have said that. That would be attributing something human to God. That would be anthropomorphizing God. And, you know, we Christians, <laughs> in a sense, we can do that because we believe that God appeared us among us as a man. So we can talk about God in much more human terms than, than other monotheistic religions. But back to this idea of a tzaddik. A tzaddik is somebody who, who um, is absolutely fixed on, on God. Uh, it's somebody who submitted their, their 
animal inclinations to the holiness and and love of God. Uh, uh, so the tzaddik, uh, in Jewish theology, a tzaddik, a righteous man, serves as a vehicle to God. He has he, he never has any ego or self consciousness. So uh, that's really the description uh, of the Christian life as we think of it. We're supposed to be the vehicle of Christ in the world. We're his hands and feet in the world and his voice. And he is the visible image of the invisible God. So Jesus of Nazareth, uh, if a Jew is a believer, he would say that Jesus of Nazareth is the ultimate tzaddik. All his deeds are righteous. And I, I really pondered this idea of righteousness for so many years, and I've come up with what I think righteousness is. When, as a... Uh, uh, a modern American person, when I hear righteousness, I think of it as simply forensic. In other words, just a legal term that I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, I have my rights. I'm in the right. Uh, it is my right. That sense of rightness. But I really think that for the Jew, it is so much, or in, in Hebrew theology, it's so much more than it is in our common discussion that... If it's true that God is the one who is perfectly righteous, well, it's the nature of God. And what is the nature of God? To me, a very telling point is the word tzedek means tzedek is a righteous man. Tzedek means righteousness. Tzedekah means charity or generosity. It's almost the same word as righteousness. You cannot be righteous unless you are generous because God is generous. His righteousness is a righteousness that does not flow from correctness alone. It flows from love, his love. And to be a righteous person means to be the vehicle of, of, the, of the character of God. And all of us save Christ are imperfectly Righteous. Well, what about our Blessed Mother? Well, by God's grace, she's perfectly righteous. But <laughs> only Jesus, by his own nature, is a righteous man. So, this is righteousness. And the text here says, Let in a nation that is righteous. Just, righteous, same word in, in the text. One that keeps faith. Uh, no, no, okay, I got to look at this in the text itself. Uh, gosh, where did I put it? Okay, it's here. It's here. It's here. Okay, come on, computer. Well, again, the computer is just sort of making uh, wiggly things. Oh, more of the waiting music. Uh, well, trust me on this. <laughs> I hope. Never trust him. It says, trust me. Ah, there we go. Oh, I got it. I got it. Okay. Open the gates. Uh, and this is very interesting uh, uh, because oh, it's open the gates uh, that the nation, the righteous nation uh, can enter in. And then it says that keeps faithfulness. And that word is related to amen. Uh, it's amunim. Uh, when you say amen, what you're saying is that this is true. This is this is something you can depend on. You can count on it. Uh, amuna uh, is 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 faithfulness, but it's something you can you can count on. Now, the text seems to repeat itself when it goes on 
to uh, a nation of firm purpose you keep in peace, for its trust is in you. That word is a little different. It means you can rely on it. You can rely on God. Uh, um, it has more to do with hope than with faith. But um, all of this is about about righteousness, that so often we forget that God's purpose is not simply to get us to heaven. It's more than that. You know, uh, people hope for heaven, and I encourage them to do so. But think about it. We get more than heaven when we die. We are made part of that family, which is God. And the process by which we are made part of that family is that the character of Christ is imparted to us. And what is the character of Christ? I always look at Galatians, the fifth chapter, love, peace, patience, joy, etc. The fruits of the Holy Spirit are the very, the very personality of Christ and thus the very nature of God. Righteousness is about, uh, look at those fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, sacrificial love, agape, peace, patience, joy, generosity, kindness, humility, self-restraint. These are these reflect the very nature of God. And that's what God wants to do with you. He wants to make you, well, a tzaddik, a person who reflects and is a vehicle of the divine nature. It's it's So that's what I mean when I say there's more than heaven when you die. It's being brought into that family which is which is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, Saint John Paul the Great said, "God is not uh, is 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 a family, the perfect family," and we're invited to join that. So, um, I think that's breathtaking. And so many of us just worry about him when you die. Now, I I got to get to this next reading because this is, uh, <laughs> you know, not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. I do not know how people who who believe in the radical reformation doctrine now, i don't know many people who are protestant who do uh, the radical reformation doctrine that you need do nothing to go to heaven um i did once meet a great protestant theologian who was the leader of a great uh, evangelical institution in and I'm, I'm not saying that sarcastically it was truly a great institution in uh chicago and, uh, you know, I, I speaking fluent, fluent evangelicalese from my, my Pentecostal background, I, I, you know, my Catholic Pentecostal background, I, um, I tried to sound as King James as I could trying to make nice with this guy. And, uh, I talked about altar calls that I'd actually led altar calls, which is a big thing for some evangelicals. And he kind of looked a little askance and he said, well, at, at our Institute, we don't do altar calls that often. I said, oh, no, why not? I said, because you might think that you were saved by the work of coming up to the altar. Um, huh? Yeah, yeah. That you might think of that as a work and get a false assurance of salvation. I said, oh, and he was one of these people, you could get an absolute assurance of salvation. Once saved, always saved. I said, but you could get a false assurance of salvation? Yes. So then I said, so then you can't really know if you're saved. He said, no, you can know. You have an absolute assurance of salvation. But it could be a false assurance. He said, yes. I said, oh, I see. <laughs> I thought, thank God I'm a Catholic. I can go to confession, hear the words, I absolve you. Uh, and, um, um, you know, I can trust Jesus instead of trusting my assurance of salvation. But um, that idea that, that 
I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I need do nothing. In fact, is sometimes doing things is counterproductive. How do they read this? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I always say kingdom of heaven doesn't necessarily mean going to heaven when you die, but it's entering into your divine inheritance, which I would say includes heaven when you die. But only the one who does, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And that word does is, it's, how do you get around that? I, w- I didn't look this up, but I will, but I, it sh- I'm sure that it is the same word, oh, good grief. Uh, where did I put it? Come on. Okay. Oh, no. That's not working. Why does my computer just never like... I'm going to do this. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Hold on. I need to copy. I need to paste. I need... Okay. It's making progress. All right. Now, okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and the Greek word for does... Oh, I hope I'm right about this. I hope I'm right about this. No, I'm wrong. It's Poyon, not Ergon. The one who does, but it's it's still, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It still means the same thing. Poyon, the one doing the will of my father. I don't see how you can, can, can say that you need do no works because your works express what you really believe. Obedience is the flip side of the coin of faith. Now, I, I should stop, but I'm going to go on. Everyone who listens to these words of mine is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Remember, house on the rock, that's not that place in Wisconsin. House on the rock is the temple. That's uh, This could be a temple reference, but it's also a reference to something else. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and buffeted. The house did not collapse. It was set solidly on rock. What's he talking about? You can uh, uh, go to the desert with your sheep. And you look around, and it's dry as a bone, except down in the valley. Um, they they call, uh, they don't even translate it in some texts, wadi. It means river in Arabic. And it's it, what it really means is a, a gulch. Maybe that's why they don't translate it, because gulch sounds kind of awful. You know, one of these dried-out gulches. Well, there's green grass down in the bottom, because that's the last place where there's any moisture. So you take your sheep down there. Pass your sheep. You say, I'm going to build a little house down here so I don't have to commute with the sheep. Don't do it because you see, uh, you got to build your house up on the rock overlooking the gulch because there are these storms that, that, that will come into the, the mountains and it might be a blue sky and dry as a bone, but it's rained in the mountains and all of a sudden a wall of water comes down. And if you built your house down there where it's convenient, you're going to get swept away. If you have a religion of convenience, you're going to be swept away. Did you hear what I said? If you have a religion of convenience, in other words, if you built your temple down there in the valley where it's nice and green and cool, build your house like the temple up on the rock because the temple was built on a rock in Jerusalem. Well, if you build your house, if you build your temple and you worship in a religion of convenience, you are going to be swept away. That's why we build our house on the rock. Jesus' words are difficult. Uh, The teachings of the church are difficult. The ten suggestions, I mean commandments, are difficult. Why bother? We could do the, you know, there are easier religions around, yeah. But a religion of convenience, a religion, Francis George said this, people who start their own religion eventually find they are worshiping themselves. So build your house on the rock. The house built on the rock is the temple. Build your religion up on the ridge. 
You can pass your sheep down there, but don't live down there. You're in the world, not of the world. All right, enough. Let's let's go. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with our our uh, a very brief, but I hope very pointed uh, mass hysteria, and um, we'll open the phones eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. I hope I made it clear. This is about a religion of convenience. Okay. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah, hallelujah. This is a beautiful song. It shouldn't be used in church. It's actually about women of easy virtue in part. Uh, but it is a beautiful song. It's, uh, oh yeah, it's got a line in there. Uh, oh, you know, she, some, never mind. <laughs> it's a family show. But if you look at the words, they're not terribly indecent, but they are rather, you wonder what the story is. But uh, it has been played at Mass. Uh, what other words? Oh, I should look those up. But at any rate, let's go to Mass Hysteria. Dogs and cats living together. Mass Hysteria. I wanted to continue the theme of yesterday, the choir loft. Um, I, I hope I made my point that originally the choir was that monastic uh, organization that chanted the liturgy of the hours and the Mass they sat up in front facing one another, except during Mass in which they faced the altar, which was in the far east end of the church. So you'd have the altar in the far east end of the church. Then you would have the choir, uh, uh, which was a Greek term. Uh, then you would have the chancel, which means the uh, consulus, I think is the word in Latin. It means a, a grillwork, a lattice. And then you'd have the nave in which the 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 people stood. Only the clergy or quasi clergy went into the choir. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not that this is just what it was. But during mass, you can still see this if you go to a monastery uh, that that they lift the seats up that they're sitting on, and then they turn forward and they look at the altar. Uh, the the choir loft, as I said yesterday, was really kind of a Renaissance and post-Reformation thing. Churches didn't have choir lofts. You go into ancient churches, there's no choir loft. In St. Peter's, there's no choir loft. Um, I don't think there is. You go into all these ancient churches, no choir loft, unless it's been added. Uh, because that idea of a special group of singers... Though it is biblical, there were there were singers in the temple, but it wasn't part of Christian life because we were all, in a way, the choir. Um, and of course, as I've been pointing out, you, you, they didn't sing hymns at mass; they sang the mass. They sang hymns during the liturgy, the hours. However, the choir loft was put in uh, to accommodate the choir, and the first time in the history of the Catholic Church that the choir—I'd love to know—the very first time. But the choir came up to the altar and faced the people. They're not even facing the altar. They're not even facing each other. They're facing the people. That's because we conceive of the altar as a stage. That was all yesterday. Why did I make a big deal about the choir loft? Because we assume, oh, the choir loft. Well, it's the choir loft. Where did it come from? Nowhere. It's the choir loft. 
there was a time when there was no choir loft. I mean, if you're really part of a universal church, you do your best. This is about discipleship. You know, I hope I'm encouraging you uh, not simply to church membership or not simply to the moral life, but to discipleship. You look at something in church and ask a question. Where did it come from? Incense. Where did it come from? It came from the temple. Why did they use it in the temple? Because it was very symbolic. It was a sweet smell that went up to heaven. Uh, um, it, it symbolized the prayers of Israel and symbolizes in the book of Revelation the prayers of the saints. And we use incense at mass. It's a symbol. Uh, there's so many things like uh, a communion rail. Where did that come from? Were there always communion rails? Well, yeah, there kind of were. It's an idea from the temple. And it came into the church very, very early. There were uh, certainly communion rails, or what we would call a communion rail, a chancel, in the early days, uh, um, certainly by the 300s. So to find out where these things came from, where did our liturgical practices come from? What was the purpose of them? They all have purposes. For instance, uh, uh, the tabernacle veil. I guess there are some people who really hate the use of a tabernacle veil. It's a beautiful biblical idea. It's about the Ark of the Covenant. What is what is sacred is covered, and it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Because uh, in the Eastern Church, they actually wave the communion veil over the bread and wine uh, before it's consecrated as a symbol of the, the breathing of the Holy Spirit thing. The communion veil is, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a symbol for charity which covers the multitude, and a reminder of the sacredness of what we're doing. All these things have meaning. And just say, ah, they're old-fashioned. Well, yeah. Uh, what's that song? Uh, play it again, Sam. Uh, when true lovers woo, they still say, I love you. That's kind of old-fashioned, too. All right, let's go to, uh, where are we going? To letters. That's what we're going to do now, letters. Okay, I have some really interesting letters today that I want to look at. Um, this is this is one that, that I got a while ago about Catholic high schools. Father, we have tried to send our children to Catholic schools. And I thought it was going to be a complaint about they're not getting Catholic enough. They went to Catholic grade schools until 8th grade. But my main complaint about is about Catholic high schools. We've lived in three different cities, and all the Catholic high schools tend toward preparing kids for college. Only one of my children was college-bound. The others wanted to take classes in auto repair, carpentry, culinary arts, graphic arts. None of the Catholic high schools offered those types of classes. Uh, you know, um, this is something I have said, too. I think that we are in a real pickle in this country because, you know, we go to these wonderful schools where we learn uh, <laughs> a cartoon, uh, uh, an old New York cartoon. There are two guys dressed in uh, sport jackets, uh, standing out in a cornfield with their arms open. And one looks over there and says, oh, you're an English major, too. <clears throat> and they're, the only work they get was scarecrows. This is something that I used to remind my students when I taught in the, in the university. College is not a trade school. Well, you get more money if you go to college. No, that's not why you go to college. It's It's a certain kind of education. And we in this country no longer know how to build a chair or raise a chicken 
everything we, we use comes from China with some assembly required, um, we're in trouble because we don't know how to, we have, you know, we can, we can get a wonderful degree and sell burgers, but that's, you know, that's, uh, we've raised our kids to, to think that work is not honorable, uh, physical labor. And I have said, and I've never found anyone who, who was able to realize this dream. I would love it if somebody could start a series of Catholic trade schools where you lived a quasi-monastic life, not a, not a life of deprivation, but a school where you went to learn a trade, you learned, you, you prayed the liturgy of the hours in mass, you lived the Catholic life, and then they'd help you get a job in your chosen field, be it welding or be it chicken raising or be whatever. They would help you find a job doing that honorable work. Hard work is honorable. Jesus, the Son of God, when God became man, he did not become a university professor. He was a teacher, but a rabbinical teacher. What he did most of his life, he was in the building trades. Think about it. Jesus was a construction worker for 18 years at least. Hard work, physical labor is honorable in the Christian scheme of things. You know, you go to... Uh, uh, college now and you take gender studies and you get good employment in a gender factory, right? I mean, this is nuts. We, we, we don't honor productive work anymore. And, you know, it'd be great for, for men and for women, uh, um, a, a, uh, a, a, a string of schools in different parts of the country. And I'd call them, uh, St. Joseph schools where you learn to trade and you learn the, the, the liturgy of the church. You learn the breviary, you learned a prayer life, and uh, um, I really think that. So this letter really, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but but um, it would be a great service to the world if somebody somebody could do that. I don't have the resources or the ability. Uh, I my family in Germany were were Finnish carpenters, and I don't think we were very good at it. And we came over to this country and found there's more money in selling it than in making it. So I. I can't hammer a nail straight. However, it's an honorable and noble thing. Okay, uh, this is kind of an interesting one. Let me look at the watch here. Uh, when Jesus, why was Jesus buried in a cave and not in the ground? Didn't they bury people in the ground? Yeah, they did, but usually not. They would bury them usually in caves. We see that in uh, uh, the Old Testament. Abraham bought the cave at Machpelah uh, from the Hittites to, to uh, bury Sarah. And that cave is still there in Hebron. Um, and what they would do is after, I think, a year, they would gather all the bones, the flesh having left them, put them in small uh, kind of miniature coffins called ossuaries and, and just leave them there. Uh, so that was kind of the, the way they did it. And this is the eternal question. Why do we pray to change or stop abortion a person's good health and do keep praying i should have prayed at the beginning of lord while we got you on the line please give wisdom and bravery to the supreme court we pray for an end to abortion in, in this country uh, okay uh why do we pray to change that i i tell you all the time that that pagans pray to change the will of god or the gods or the powers that be and people say, well, Christians pray so that God can change our will. Well, that's true. But even more, when we pray, we give God permission to do his perfect will. 
God will not do his perfect will without our collaboration and permission. You know, the will of God is not this absolute uh, deterministic, uh, unchangeable thing. We have a humble God who will not do his will in my life. His general will for the universe, that's his problem. But his will in my life, I can get in the way of God doing his will in my life. I can say no to God. So we pray uh, uh, um, that God will do his perfect will in our life. We're giving him permission. And I someone took umbrage the idea that we give God permission. It's the amazing thing about the God we worship. He will not intervene in our life without uh, um <laughs> without our permission. <laughs> the uh um the voice in my head just sent me a cartoon as a, a checkout counter, ten items or less. That scratched out and beneath it is written fewer. What can I say? I was an English major. <laughs> okay, never mind. Uh, it's funny. I thought it was funny. Thanks, Nick. That was cute. Okay, there's one thing I really wanted. There we go. There we go. All right, this is kind of interesting. My Catholic nephew is marrying a woman in the Ethiopian Toahedo Church. My wife says Catholics can take communion there, but I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think that we can for our rules and for their rules. Now, what is the Toahedo Church? It is the it is the Coptic Orthodox Church in Ethiopia uh, and in Eritrea. I, I think the Toahedo. It's fascinating. The liturgy of the Coptic Church, be it the United to Rome or the ones that are not United to Rome, but especially the Ethiopians, amazing. We had a, a Coptic Rite Mass at St. Thomas when I was pastor there, and it was fascinating. Once a month we would have it, and uh, um, the, the, it goes on for hours, and the, the chanting is amazing. You can get it on YouTube. Look up uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Mass, and you'll get it on YouTube. It's Or Ethiopian Orthodox Easter Mass. That's a, that's a real gonzo blowout hoopla celebration of the resurrection. You can look all those adjectives up. But I wouldn't advise taking communion there for two reasons. We can receive communion in the Eastern Rite in an emergency. It isn't something we do regularly. However, they have very strict fasting rules. And so we might say, we can, oh, we can take communion in your church. No, you can't. We have our rules, but they have a lot of their own rules, which are to be respected. So don't just assume that if, if uh, somebody says, oh, yes, the theologian said I can take communion in your church. Oh, he did, did he? Hmm. Not so much. All right, let's go to a break. We'll come back with the word of the day. And um, uh, then we'll open up the phones at 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. How many roads must a man walk down before he's called a man? Oh, this, we used to play this at Mass too. Um, not this version. All right. <laughs> Uh, 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149. Let's go to the word of the day. 
At the end of the gospel reading, this would be Matthew, the seventh chapter, the 27th verse. Uh, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and buffeted the house, and it collapsed and was completely ruined. Well, it's a lot more poetic in Greek, and I think it has a slightly different meaning. First of all, it buffeted the house. Whenever you hear the word house in the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament, not necessarily Old Testament, but New Testament, think temple. It may and probably does refer to the temple, and it might have a double meaning. So the house was built, the temple was built on the uh, an outcropping of rock on the high point of the old city of David, the oldest part of Jerusalem. It was a house built on rock. Well, he's saying, no, it's not built on real rock. The house is going to collapse. But what really intrigued me was was the, uh, uh, the, the, they say it was completely ruined. It's really, I think, more poetic. And the fall of it was great. The fall of it was great. Isn't that something? Um, the word fall is ptosis. It's from pipto, meaning a, it just means a fall. But the fall of it was great. Uh, I mean, the fall of Jerusalem has had repercussions down to our time. That that uh, um, it was one of the greatest catastrophes in human history. Uh, I think Josephus says that a million people died. It probably wasn't a million, but it was hundreds of thousands of people died in the siege of Jerusalem. And those few who survived were enslaved. You go to the Colosseum in Rome, it was it was built with the gold that was pillaged from the temple and from Jerusalem. The fall of that house was great. It, it echoes through history. So I, you know, I think it, I don't know. I just think it's cool. All right. Again, we do have open lines smart. in the phone. Eight eight eight. Oh, Maxwell Smart. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Not that smart. Who have we got on the line, dear voice in my head? Rich from Milwaukee. What can I do for you, Rich? Hey. Hello. <laughs> Said like someone from Wisconsin. Hey. <laughs> I love Wisconsin. <laughs> At any rate, don't you know? <laughs> what can I do for you? When I when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I can see that when Jesus went to Israel, his works were involved in faith mixed. But then you look at Paul and in First Timothy one sixteen, it says that he was first to be saved by grace, and he was our pattern for yeah. salvation. Then you look at oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fifteen. Death, burial, and resurrection. Oh no, you're absolutely saved. you're saved by grace. Your very ability to do works is a gift from God. But I think one of the one of the most um, pertinent verses, oddly enough, in the discussion of works and grace comes from the Gospel of St. John, the very first uh, chapter, where he says that he he bestowed charin anticharitos, grace against grace. And it's like being a good parent. You give your kid a responsibility, and that's a gift, and you give him the ability to do it, that sort of thing. And he he does he does the work, and if he does a good job. He give him a little more responsibility. He does a good job, get more responsibility. That if I respond to the grace that God gives me, then He gives me a greater grace. You know, and when Saint Paul talks about one is it's clear it's it's one is not saved 
by works, if you look at the context, always works of the law. And it's pretty clear that phrase only appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in St. Paul. And what it seems to refer to is the ritual prescriptions, whether a dead mouse falls into a clay bowl and whether you can use the clay bowl or destroy. Those are works of the law. There's a whole scroll called some works of the law. And St. Paul is saying we're not saved by those little picayune uh, things about whether you can eat uh, oysters or not and, and dead mice and all that, uh, that, that that those are works of the law. But the works of faith, that's the way I always like to, to talk about it, the works of faith, that I'm doing this because I believe that my Father in Heaven wants me to do this. Those are works of faith. So one isn't saved by works of the law, and one is saved by grace, that I the very ability I have to do anything is grace. Uh, but if I reject grace and by, by saying, yeah, Lord, I know you want me to live the godly life but nah i'm not gonna do that so uh um uh you know so so what yeah so so i really don't think there's any conflict between works and faith because uh the works that god asks us to do are really works of faith they're expressions of our trust in him i'm only doing this because i trust you jesus so i hope that helps by the way everybody uh the phones are open 888-914-9149 888-914-9149 and until i get a phone call i'm going to go back to letters if i can find them yes oh <laughs> this is a classic question that i haven't answered in a while from arlene how can i dispose of broken rosaries and not sure whether rosaries are blessed or not Oh, dear. <laughs> the Jews have something interesting in their synagogues called a geniza, which is where they put old sacred texts that are no longer useful for the liturgy. It's called a geniza. And there was one in Cairo that, that they hadn't cleaned out for 1,200 years. And boy, the stuff that we learned from the Cairo geniza, uh, uh, amazing, uh, the ancient texts that were just sort of stashed up there. Uh, but uh, when a Torah scroll becomes ripped or faded, illegible, they can't uh, use it anymore, but they don't want to throw it out. And there's a sort of geniza in every Catholic home, a drawer where you put all the sacred stuff. It's not really necessary because what we believe about sacramentals, not sacraments, but sacramentals, is that when a thing is no longer useful for its purpose, purpose for which it blessed is no was blessed is no longer applicable in other words a blessing isn't for a thing it's for the use of a thing that's a, i think a very important distinction that uh the now this does not refer to something like consecration that's where we believe that the body blood soul and divinity of jesus is physically present uh, there's no bread there's no wine left so that's that's a consecration uh, that's a transubstantiation and you would never just dispose of that ever it must be consumed however a rosary when it is broken and is no longer useful for that purpose the purpose for which it was blessed no longer exists in a sense the blessing has ceased so you can you can just throw it out now i can never do that so it goes in the drawer the holy drawer uh if you got a lot of stuff if there are books or something you can burn them 
or or you can just bury things in the backyard. Uh, it'll make, archaeologists will wonder about that. So, so yeah, that's what you do with uh, broken stuff. So again, eight eight. Oh, we have a call. Oh, good. Someone's listening to the show. Thank God. <laughs> Deacon Lane from Turlock, California. Are you with us, Deacon Lane? Yes, I am, Father Simon. What a pleasure to talk with you. You make me laugh all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, if you don't laugh, you cry. What can I do for you, Deacon? So, Father Simon, the fourth joyful mystery. And yes. our, our uh, Simeon, the wise man Simeon, who knew yes. that Christ's child was the Savior. Why didn't any of the elders in the temple listen to this man and observe what he was, what he was talking about? Well, the word elder, of course, as you know, uh, in Greek is presbyter, which becomes priest in English. And having been a priest mm -hmm. all my life, yeah, yeah, enough with the religion. I'm busy. i got to make sure there's toilet paper in the ladies' room. Just kidding. Just kidding. But seriously, uh, when you look at, at people who are in the business of religion, as are you and I, so frequently we get so absorbed in the task that we're not paying attention to God. We think, I'm serving the Lord. Get out of my way. Uh, you know, that I don't know if you've run into this in your own life. I certainly have in mine that, that sometimes I get so busy, I'm too busy to hear God. And that's when God sends a, a good prophet or prophetess to slap me upside the head. Uh, does that help a little? So, yeah. Do you think they just consider, oh, yeah, Simeon, right, right. Yeah, we, sure, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Finish your task. Uh, is that what they were we'll saying see. Him, or is that what they thought about we'll him? We'll see. You know, I, I, yeah. I have known some people who have genuine prophetic gifts. There's, there's a friend of mine uh, uh, who came up to me at a fundraising banquet. for. Uh, we were trying to start a home for drug-addicted women, and uh, uh, I had been just working myself to death. This was when I was young and actually did stuff like that. I was just I was so tired, I once fell asleep standing in front of the refrigerator at 10 at night. And um, I just wanted the Lord to reassure me I was doing his will. And this woman came up to me and she said, Father Rich, you don't know me, but I've been praying for you. And I had a vision. And she saw me in all this sporting equipment with a red sports car. And she said, the Lord wants to tell you that you're just playing at this. You're not doing anything he wants. <sighs> And I thought, well, <laughs> this woman will never lie to me. So uh, uh, she became a very good friend. But when she calls and says, Father Rich, I've been praying for you. Oh, dear, what have I done now, Lord? Uh, you know, so it's nice. It's nice to know some genuine prophets. But, uh, you know, I always say that, that we priests, and in this I would include deacons in, in, in the clergy, we're the brakes on the car, and the prophets are the engine. And... You know, it's a, for a car to function properly, you got to have an engine and brakes. If you had to have one or the other, I probably would pick the brakes because, well, at least you can lose, use it as a planter <laughs> for, or something like that. I, I think you can actually use a car as a septic tank. It's been done. But a car with an engine but no brakes is going to go over the cliff eventually. But you got to have brakes and the engine. We, the clergy, are... Are, are the brakes? Well, let's pray about that. I don't know that God wants us to put a dome on the church necessarily. We're going to pray about that. Uh, whereas the prophet is the one who says, I know this is from the Lord, and I'm going to pray, Father, until you see the light. But, you know, the temple was a huge institution that needed to be maintained. And sometimes we get so carried away with maintaining that huge institution 
that we fail to hear God no matter how loudly he speaks. I'm sure you can resonate to that being as I am <laughs> in the clergy. So yes. does that help? That helps, Father Simon. Thank you, and God bless you in your ministry. God bless you. On to the prophets, St. Paul says. All right. Who have we got now, dear voice of America? Thanks so much for listening, Deacon Lane. Who have we got now? Pat from Edmonton, Canada. Oh, over the frost Hi, curtain. What can? How you doing, Pat? What can I do for you? Do, we're staying warm. Why does the priest bend over the um, the host and the cup uh, when he's doing the words of consecration? Well, it's it's. Uh, I, I think it's a gesture of intimacy. I don't know when that started, but it's a gesture of intimacy. Uh, and in the old mass, you had three tones. You had loud, barely audible, and not audible, in which you were just speaking to God. And I think that the bending over and the whispering the words of consecration, they were they were to be whispered. Uh, I think it's very important. You've heard me say that um, if you look at the word you in the text of Mass, the you is almost always addressed to the Father, that that the Mass is a prayer offered by Christ uh, to the Father. And I think the quiet, bent-over whispering at the consecration is is uh, where, about where Jesus is talking to the disciples. And I think that was done so as not to mistake the, the, the Mass as a, a thing directed at the people. It was still talking to the Father. So I think that's where those quiet gestures were there. Speaking of quiet gestures, Drew is coming up. <laughs> 